Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We enter another week this morning with the reverberations from the weekend still ringing in our ears. Did David Cameron really admit that he wasn't very good at his job when he was Prime Minister and he should have made more of his decision to actually have a referendum and explained it better? Did Boris Johnson really liken himself to the Hulk, a fictitious Marvel character who turns green and destructive when he's angry? And did everybody fall for it and start saying, oh no, but the Hulk is really dangerous and he shouldn't be like the Hulk? because the Hulk destroys things. Even Mark Ruffalo got involved from Hollywood and said, no, the Hulk isn't great. The Hulk is not good. In fact, it's so much better if you work in tandem with all the other fictitious characters from Marvel and stay in the European Union. I mean, is this where we've really got to? And did the Lib Dem leader, Joe Swinson, really promise to reverse Brexit if she wins the next election? Also, did she really say that she felt terrible that David Cameron had offered a referendum, the very same referendum she actually asked for in 2008. Perhaps the most bizarre outburst of the weekend was from Guy Verhofstadt, the EU's Brexit coordinator who has nailed his colours very much to the Lib Dem mask. He decided to make a speech at their conference in which he sung the praises of empire, anathema to the Lib Dems when it's British, but strangely, it got him a standing ovation because it was European. Today, Boris, in the guise of Dr Banner, heads to Luxembourg where he will meet up with Michel Barnier and Jean-Claude Juncker to discuss a new deal, or possibly a revamped old deal, or possibly a no-deal deal. The travelling circus continues. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll talk to Andrew Bridgen MP about the RNLI scandal that broke yesterday and dominated the debate on social media. The lifeboat charity found themselves in the eye of the storm when it was revealed that some of their donations are handed overseas despite them laying off 135 workers due to what they call a shortfall in funds. Plus, I'll be asking why so many children are now terrified by their fear of climate catastrophe and environmental doom thanks to their teachers, their parents and groups like Extinction Rebellion. It's a truly shocking situation. Some of these kids are being given psychedelic drugs to cure themselves of the fear. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The human zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hold back the river, let me look in your eye. Hold back the river, so 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk Radio. Matthew Wright will be back at one o'clock. Uh, he's got over the lurgy that kept him out of the studio for most of last week, and we're delighted to see him back. Uh, he'll be here from one with Kevin O'Sullivan. A lot to talk about between now and then, of course, including a story which really went absolutely crazy and viral yesterday on Twitter in particular. This was about the RNLI, who were revealed in both the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail, on the Mail on Sunday, uh, to basically be spending about £3.3 .3 million pounds, uh, of donations nation money in uh, lands away from the UK where they basically sell themselves as the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, uh, the place where you put money in a tin and it makes people's lives saved by people in boats which are launched by volunteers who are not paid, uh, run by a man uh, by the name of Mark Dowie who's paid £189,000 a year. Now the problem for me uh, is that you should be able to criticise charities. I've said very many times on this show that a lot of big, big charities are now simply big business uh, and they run so expensive an operation that very small amounts of the money that they do collect from well-meaning donors uh, actually gets to the people they're supposed to be using it for. Now, loads of people agreed with me. Lots of people disagreed with me. But many of the people who disagreed turned it into a kind of Brexit conversation about, oh, you must be a racist, xenophobe nationalist if you don't like the RNLI giving money to foreign countries. Well, it's not as simple as that. We're going to talk to Andrew Bridge in a moment about it. First, though, here's Joe, uh, who's in London. Hello, Joe. Hi, Mike. It's nice to speak with you. Nice to talk to um, you. What do you want to say? Um, well, I wanted to say that I saw a lot of vitriol directed at RNLI yesterday. On, There's a lot directed at me as well. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. <laughs> um, I went onto their website, and from their main menu, you can choose what we do. So that's one click, and it lists four items. It's lifeboats, lifeguards, love defence, and international work. And you can click on international work, and they blatantly say that they spend £3 million overseas. So I saw one person accuse them of malpractice and being in breach of charity status. I think the RNLI have publicised on yeah. their website what they're doing and how much they're spending. And they're really transparent in that. That said, I was kind of surprised that they're doing it. And, you know, so, so what raised my eyebrows was that they're things that are perhaps inappropriate for that charity to be funding. So maybe things like that should be covered in foreign aid or yeah. something. I mean, they're the Royal National Lifeboat, so you expect it to go there. Well, but exactly. I mean, their, 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 yeah. Twitter, their Twitter account, in which they admitted sending the money overseas, it's got a little blue circle inside of which it's got a flag that says RNLI, and underneath it says lifeboats. So, yeah, you know, you can, you can say, I mean, they're being transparent about it in the same way um, that iTunes is transparent about the, the terms and conditions that you don't bother reading before you click every time you buy and download a, a movie. Yeah, that's true. Do you know what I mean? Um, obviously, ab yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, I'd say caveat emptor. If you feel very strongly about giving to a charity, shouldn't you know exactly what they're supporting? Well, you should, and, I, um, and you're not wrong. Yeah. I, I would not accuse them of, of not being transparent, but I would accuse them of being slightly disingenuous, I think, because I think an awful lot of people, and certainly from the people that I saw, and I'm not talking about the crazy, you know, ridiculous tweets, I'm talking about people who said, you know, we've been raising money for them this weekend, we've been running a 5k race for them, we didn't know about this, we're not happy. You know, I think people genuinely are not equipped to walk up to a guy standing collecting money for the lifeboats uh, to say, oh, can I please see your website to make, make sure I know what your chief executive is being paid, which is another issue, 189 grand a year. You know, about 60 people getting paid over 100,000. You know, there's an awful lot of money not going to lifeboats, is all I'm saying. No, that's very true. But I think, um, you know, you can criticise the, all the charities for the amount that they're spending on running costs. And what I would suggest, and they won't like it at all, is that on their collecting tins and boxes and whatever they do, is that they have, you know, um, a percentage breakdown of where that pound that you're giving them is going. Absolutely right. 
Absolutely right. Thanks very much, Joe. Good call. Uh, let's talk to Andrew Bridget MP, uh, who has uh, something to say about this story, quite rightly, I would say. Andrew, very good morning to you. Welcome. Well, I was actually quoted in the Times article, and uh, I listened with interest to what Joe said. Um, the suggestion that charities should have to uh, display at the point of giving, whether that's on the internet or in the street, uh, in a street collection, uh, the percentage that will actually go to the good causes, I think we should bring that in for all charities. And I think that would be a way of, of uh, driving efficiency within the charitable sector, in that if you want to give to pair animal charities or wildlife charities or green charities or whatever, you would choose one that the largest proportion of your donation was actually going to go to the good yeah. cause and the one that was most efficient. And that would be the level of competition at... Uh, for charities to keep them on the straight and narrow. But in particular with the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, I mean, the clear perception is that what you're, when you put that money in the box that's normally on the pub bar, um, that change, that your money's going to provide lifeboat and life-saving yeah. services around the coast of the UK. And I'm aware that uh, currently there's increased demand for those services uh, around our own coasts. Uh, that donations have reduced anyway, um, and that staff are being made redundant, and there's talk about reducing the number of lifeboat stations. At the same time, as it appears, that unbeknownst to most of the benefactors of the RNLI, they're, they're indulging in what may well be worthy causes, but not necessarily within the, within the remit of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution or, or what the vast majority of the people who give to that charity believe is their core yeah. function, particularly at a time uh, when the charity appears to be short of funds. Well, exactly right. And, and it's very clear to me um, that when they say things like, well, we are funding creches in Bangladesh in order to prevent drownings overseas... Well, I'm sorry. You know, there are a lot of people who drown in the world. You can't save everybody. And if you set up a British uh, a lifeboat association to save lives around the coasts of Britain, you shouldn't be giving money to Bangladesh to, to open creches to so-called prevent people from drowning because you should open a different charity uh, which is based either here or in Bangladesh where you raise money for making creches available to people in Bangladesh, shouldn't you? Well, there can be nothing racist whatsoever about the Royal National Lifeboat. They go out and rescue people who are in trouble around the coast of the UK. Right. They will be of all nationalities, won't they? Yes, of course they will. And many of them will be people trying to come here illegally, I would imagine, but they still rescue them. Well, they rescue anybody who's in trouble, yes. Um, so, but, I mean, you know, the suspicion is for me that there have been some pretty good jollies from the charities to go and see where these far-flung projects are, how they're performing. Mm. Well, interesting as well, is it not, that this whole debate on Twitter yesterday became a kind of ridiculous, extreme version of Brexit. You know, I was, I was accused of, of, of being some kind of mad nationalist xenophobe because I questioned whether this was actually a good idea. You know, and you were either for it, in which case you were one of the freedom-loving European pro-FBPE types, you know, who hate everything to do with Brexit. Uh, and if you were, in fact, someone who didn't think that this is what the, um, the, the, the charity was for, that you were clearly from the dark side. Yes, I'm, I did have a few um, on both sides of the argument emails uh, myself uh, yesterday afternoon. What I really hope doesn't happen is that uh, the good work that the RNLI do around our coasts uh, that isn't hit now with a, a reduction in donations at a time when they're, they're struggling to cope with the demand for their services 
um, around around our coasts uh, this year. Yeah. So. I think that it really be... is quite a remarkable situation, but thank you for talking to us about it. Just before I let you go, Andrew, can I ask you about um, ah. some of the stories at the weekend? Um, the ERG group possibly watering down its uh, its opposition to Theresa May's deal, Boris off to Luxembourg. Is anything going to change from your perspective? No. Um, I voted three times against Theresa May's uh, withdrawal agreement. That is, that's dead. Um, the problem that Boris has got is that... Um, you know, and I, I do admire the way he's sticking with the we're leaving whatever happens. And uh, Parliament has, has tried to take all the leverage he has in the negotiations that we could actually walk away from uh, without a deal on the 31st of October away from him. Uh, give him his due. He's sticking with it. Um, but there are many things wrong with the withdrawal agreement, uh, apart from the backstop uh, that Theresa May negotiated. Um, let's see what he comes back with, uh, if he comes back with anything and uh, we'll take it from there. But we are heading for a general election as soon as the Labour Party can uh, get the guts to face the electorate. It's amazing. All these other parties think that they've got the answer to Brexit. It's in the country's interest. But they're very reluctant to go to the people and offer it to them and stand in front of them and be held to account, as we all should be, for everything we've done and said and the way we've voted with regard to Brexit and everything else over the last uh, two and a half years since the last general election. Well, they keep saying they really want to hold the government to account, and then they keep saying they won't. <laughs> but they keep voting against having a general election. I've voted for a general election twice in the last couple of weeks, and uh, obviously the majority of Labour MPs have, have abstained or, or voted against. So uh, let's, uh, we need a general election now to clear the... Uh, the impasse that yes. this parliament finds itself in. I think you're absolutely I think right. I, I think I have been telling you that for some time. That you have. From, from the moment we lost the vote in, I think it was December 17, I came to the conclusion that we'd never get Brexit through this parliament. Yes. I found actually a, a, a tweet just uh, over the weekend. It was actually for a few days. I think it was from last week uh, when Boris and the government lost the vote to uh, to stop the Ben Act, right? Uh, you'll enjoy this because it's my favourite kind of irony of the week. And it was David Lammy who actually tweeted this uh, to a, a Tory MP. You lost. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> Go and find it. You won't, you, you won't have... You'll be laughing all day. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Andrew Bridget there. It's always good to leave him laughing. Want to come back for more? Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the number. Uh, this is Talk Radio, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So, according to a piece in the Telegraph this morning, rising numbers of children are being treated for eco anxiety because experts have claimed they warn. Parents are, uh, are saying that they're warning against terrifying their youngsters with talk of climate catastrophe. Protests by groups such as Extinction Rebellion and the recent fires in the Amazon and apocalyptic warnings by Greta Thunberg, the teenage activist, have prompted more young people to seek help. There's an organisation called the Climate Psychology Alliance. We tried to get them on. Uh, we couldn't manage to do so. Uh, I can't tell you exactly what the problem is with them. Uh, the CPA says they do not want to class this as a mental illness because unlike standard anxiety, the cause of the worry is rational. I don't know quite what that means. Let's talk to Professor Sir Carrie Cooper, who knows a thing about uh, these types of things. Uh, Carrie, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning to you, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, we know, for example, um, that we have been warned uh, continually and almost non-stop for about the last two years that we have to be carbon neutral. Even Theresa May, one of her final acts as Prime Minister, was to basically get rid uh, of uh, any kind of uh, ties that we have to diesel and petrol. And she says we're going to be carbon neutral by uh, tw uh, 20 2030, I think. I mean, people are frightened. 
Yeah, well, look, at I, I, when you talk about kids, I think there's a whole load of things that affect kids. It's not just climate change, frankly. It's one aspect of it in the sense that, you know, uh, kids, in, in contrast to adults, mm. they can't, they have not kind of a timeline on things. So if you say this is a crisis, a climate crisis, and, you know, the world, you know, we're going to have floods here and the weather's changing and kids can see the weather has changed a bit. They will worry, depending on how old they are and how mature they are. So I personally would never think that that was the sole cause of, of kids getting ill or facing anxiety or mild depression. But it's a part of a package that kids have a lot of pressures on them at school and everything gets, you know, gets thrown at them. You know, their parents juggling their, their work life and home life, working long hours. So a lot of things hit kids. But, you know, when you talk about climate change, you say it's really a major crisis, which, of course, it is. And we should have been dealt, dealing with it many, many decades ago. OK, but we're dealing with it now. But the kids are getting more anxious about themselves because they're being taught a lot more about it in school. No, but they're but getting, they're getting they anxious, though, Carrie, are they not? Because they're being told things which are facts, which, in fact, are not facts. They're being told that if we do not do something drastic you know, that basically the world is going to end. That's what they're being told. Yeah, but they, they, yeah, uh, uh, any kind of rational, sensible teacher or other adult will say to them, hey, look, it, we got to deal with it. It's your generation, my generation. We have to deal with it right now. It is ultimately a crisis, but, you know, yeah, but it isn't, though. You, have to context, you have to contextualize for kids. You have to say, look, it, we got to start doing this, that, and the other to try to prevent climate change. But believe me, you have to say to them, well, let's, Greta let's Thunberg, put reality on but let, Greta reality. Thun, Yeah, but hang on. Greta Thunberg uses very emotive language. She says yes. the house is on fire. Now, yes. the house is certainly not on fire. No, no. I, no. I, listen, Mike, I agree with you. I think they've over-egged it from the point of view of a kid understanding and contextualizing the issue. And what, what we're trying, I guess what she's trying to do and what other people are trying to do in the climate change debate is to encourage a change of behavior in, in kids and their parents now and do things that will prevent it in their lifetime. But to scare kids with floods are coming next week or you can see the climate's change because we had rain in the summer and in the winter we have, you know, hot weather. You know, you can see it. I think you have to be uh, rational. With yeah, but they're not rational. Realistic. That's my point. I mean, the Extinction Rebellion crowd, right? The guy that started that and one of the one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion was interviewed on the BBC programme in which he said that 10 billion people will die if we do yeah, not I mean, stop that, yeah, but that, using that, that, fossil fuels. I, I, I agree with you. When it comes to kids, you got to tell them the truth. You well, well, you've got, well, how about tell, just telling the truth in general for everybody? No, I agree. All of us. And, you know, but I'm more worried about kids because unlike kids, you know, us adults, we can look at it and say, well, that's just crazy. There may be a million people, you know, in 50 or 100 years will or 2 million or whatever if we don't do something about it now. Yeah, but, but I mean, we've all seen, for example, I mean, I saw, much to my horror, um, uh, shortly after all of the Extinction Rebellion stuff went on in London, there was an 11 at 11 organisation uh, getting together. They sent out 11... 11-year-olds to stand in front of uh, a demonstration and talk about how worried they were that the world was going to end. Now, yeah, if I'm, the parent, if I'm Mike, the parent of one Mike, of those Mike, kids, I agree with you. you know, I, the you know parents I, should be done for child abuse, shouldn't they? No, no, but you know what? I agree with you. The teachers and parents have to treat kids, and by the way, they mature relatively quickly. They have to give them the real facts. 
And that is really important. Well, otherwise known as the facts. Not scare them into behaving. That, that's no good no matter what you do when you're raising kids. You don't scare them into behaving in particular ways. You give them the facts about yeah. something, how it might damage their health or whatever. And I'm with you on that. I, I think we were, we're really foolish if we're going to scare kids. They have enough fears in this world at the moment. And the last thing in the world they need is that. But they, they, you want to change their behavior, but you do it with facts. Your reality, you tell them what, what, what this means and what they can do about it. Because you give them a sense of control, then they become less anxious. Just like adults need a sense of control over Brexit. Everybody's saying now after three and a half years, we need reality. What is that, by the way? I wish I knew. <laughs> all I, I know, mean, even the Climate Psychology Alliance, right? All I know are benefiting from all this. <laughs> well, listen, the Climate Psychology Alliance has said that some children are even being given psychiatric drugs to deal with eco-anxiety. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's well, shocking. That's, a, that, that's crazy. By the way, if they're given, if they're being helped with psychotherapeutic techniques, it's for a whole range of issues. It won't just be climate change. Yeah, I know, but it doesn't help, does it? Professor, no, thank it you very much. No, you, don't scare, you don't scare people. You give them the facts, you tell them, you try to change their behavior with facts, not with scaring tactics. Fear yeah. messages never work anyway. No, exactly right. Professor Sir Carrie Cooper, thank you, Professor of Organisational Psychology and Health at Manchester Business School. If you're a parent and you're telling your children that they have to be very, very scared about what is happening in terms of the way the earth is going to blow up or go on fire or anything like that, then you are a disgrace and you are irresponsible and you are likely to be causing your child to actually have anxiety. Would you really, really be proud of yourself as a parent doing that? 0344 499 1000. It's bad enough the United Nations, as we reported last week, is now actually funding teachers in our schools in Britain, up and down the country, to teach about climate change. It's absolutely ridiculous. Let's talk to Pat, who's in Stepney. Hello, Pat. Oh, good morning, Mike. Morning, sir. Yeah, when I was a boy about five or six, the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening. Yes. And the world was... I mean, I didn't know it then... But, you know, later on in life, you, the world was, what, 24 hours away from a nuclear, uh, you know... It was, you know what, it was a lot closer than any of us ever knew, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the world was, like, probably 24 hours away from a, a full nuclear exchange. And the fact is that oh, I was only five or six at the time. I didn't realise... And my parents didn't talk about it. The teachers didn't talk about mm. it in school. I just got on and played, doing playing and going to school and doing what kids do. Nobody ever scared me. It was only years later, when I got to about 10 or 12, that I realised, you know, that it, I, I got scared then a little bit. But the, the, the thingy was over. Did you ever have to do the old get under your desk in case of a nuclear attack? No. You never did that because I know people who grew up uh, who are older than me who had to go through that sort of ridiculous, you know, drill where you're in a classroom and if there was a nuclear bomb coming during the Cold War from Russia, you'd have to go and uh, basically hide under the desk. No, no, uh, uh, not 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 in my school. Okay, but having having said that, Mike, you see these kids today. You, you, I'm not saying all kids, but a lot of kids. That they, you know, they're on uh, social media and stuff and and everything, and they, they, they the parent, look, the parents and the teachers have got no real science background, and they're just they're just telling their kids what they 
what they see on social media and the television and stuff. And it, it, it really, you know, I'm not saying climate change isn't a fact or whatever, but the, the, the fact is that they're scaring kids. There's, there's more chance, Mike, yeah. there's more chance of, of having a, a, a major conflict in the world right before 2030. And I don't mean this, I hope it doesn't happen, but before 2030, well, what with Iran and God knows who else, yeah. there's more chance of having a major conflict in the world than there is of the world burning up through... Well, of course uh, there is, because guess change. what? It ain't going to happen. That is the point, Pat. And all of these people who will tell you, from Emma Thompson down, that the world is going to burn up uh, and it's going to not exist anymore. Species are going to be eradicated. Mankind is going to be wiped out. I mean, these are genuinely serious things which are stated by the people who run stuff like Extinction Rebellion. And it's all cobblers, let me tell you. 0344 499 1000 is the number. And whether we are carbon neutral or not by 2030 is not going to make one tuppence halfpenny worth of difference, I have to say. This is Talk Radio. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk a little bit about telling the untruths that politicians tell in that case. Let's talk about Joe Swinson. Joe Swinson said that she would not uh, honour the referendum should there be a second one if, in fact, the vote was to leave the European Union once again. Uh, she later then denied saying that and said, no, that wasn't really what I meant. She also said today that she was terribly disappointed about the fact that uh, David Cameron gave... Uh, the chance to the British people to have a referendum in or out on the European Union, despite the fact that in 2008 she actually asked for it herself. So lying is an interesting word to use, and I think Jamie Stone should be very careful about using it. Let's talk to Tom Brake, a man that does not make false accusations lightly. Tom, a very good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. How's very conference well. going? It's absolutely fantastic in Bournemouth. We're having great fun. So, Well, that's good. I particularly enjoyed that little dance that was the, the, uh, the B to Brexit dance, I call it, from the women who were on stage yesterday. It was a bit petty, wasn't it? Uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid I missed that dance. I'm sure it would have been highly entertaining. Yeah, you didn't miss much. You chose well there not to go and see that one. Now, let's talk about Jo Swinson, first of all. She's now saying that, basically, if you guys win the next election, uh, you're going to cancel Brexit. Absolutely. Now, what gives you the that's right clear, to do isn't that? That's clear, it? What gives you the right to do that, though? 
Well, if we, uh, as we have already announced, uh, before there is a general election underway, and we will continue to say it again and again and again in the run-up to a general election, if people vote Liberal Democrat and a, a majority of MPs in the next Parliament are Liberal Democrats, we will revoke Article 50 because we'll have made it absolutely clear that is what we intended doing. Have you worked out the number by which you must win in order to impose that particular thing on those who lost? Well, a majority of MPs is 326. And what's the percentage there then? Well, I mean, we, 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 we don't know what the percentage will be, but this is a four-party, probably a four-party contest, so I don't know what percentage that would be, but um, we'll say it, it, it was would 52, be a majority of MPs. We'll say it was 52-48, just for the sake of argument. Well, uh, I, I don't know what percentage would, would be required, but I do know that uh, 326 MPs is the majority in Parliament. Yeah, and but what I'm saying have... is, is that you guys make a big deal out of the fact that the referendum result was, in your words, very slim. So if you've got a very slim majority to run the government, would that not be the same? Well, I mean, that's an interesting argument, which, of course, could apply to the present government as well. Uh, and presumably yeah, but that, that's the a ones, point, yeah, but a point not the that ones, you make to them. Well, no, but they're not the ones who are saying that 52-48 is not really very much of a win. That's the argument of people who want to remain in the European Union. They say that it's not a big enough majority to act upon. So therefore, unless you get a bigger majority, I don't see how you can act upon it. Well, I think we'd be entitled to act on it. We will have made it very clear that that is uh, what people will get if they vote for us in a general election. And I think in contrast to the general election two years ago, where I think Theresa May tried to make it a Brexit election, the difficulty she had, of course, is that she couldn't articulate to people what they'd be voting for uh, by voting for her and Brexit. We are making it very clear. We're making it very clear that we would simply stop Brexit by revoking Article 50 to enable us to start working on the issues uh, that people are worried about. That is underfunding of the NHS, the fact our schools are, are, are struggling to get teachers and the fact that our police are, are very short of resources. Until we've sorted out Brexit, we're going to do nothing about that. And would part of you sorting out Brexit be offering anything different as far as the future of the European Union is concerned? Because, and I've said this to many people in the past, many of them, your fellow Lib Dem MPs, why don't you come up with something which people would buy into, which would be an alternative to Brexit, i.e., you know, we will change. This is the kind of thing David Cameron, I think, had in mind, and since he's the kind of uh, flavour of the month at the moment, uh, or possibly not, um, you know, the idea that, that we would... He said people were not happy with our relationship with the European Union. I think he's right about that. Why would you not work towards coming up with some form of, uh, of, of new relationship? Well, we have for, for many years, uh, contrary to the uh, perhaps, perhaps what the media have sought to portray, made it very clear that there were a substantial, substantial number of ways in which the European Union could and should be reformed. Uh, we have always stated that, and, and it goes from the, you know, the rigmarole of the Parliament travelling uh, between Brussels and Strasbourg, uh, to the sort of the very heavy emphasis on regulation. All of those things are things that uh, we, we believe could and should be reformed and we want to do that. And now that we've got uh, 16 members of the European Parliament in, uh, in the European Parliament, they're in a position to do some of those things. Would you put that in your manifesto for the next election? It has been in our manifesto uh, election after election. That's not uh, why I asked you. I said, would you put it in the next election manifesto? Well, it, it, even if it's not in the next election oh, so manifesto, and I, I'm not writing it, the Are fact you? is it, it is our existing party policy and therefore it remains party policy that, that we, seek to to reform, we seek to reform the European yeah. Union. That's not a surprise. No, but I mean specifics. I mean, I think we ought to be now talking because we have now got ourselves into such a quagmire on detail 
that you cannot then now tell me that you're going to have a broad brush approach in a manifesto. You have to be specific about what you would do so that people know. Because after all, don't forget, you don't want people voting for something they don't know what they're voting for, do you? Well, uh, and that's why, uh, presumably, you can't really criticise us for saying if we, uh, if you vote Liberal Democrat and get a majority Lib Dem government, we're going to revoke Article 50. I can't think of anything clearer than that. No, myself. that's very clear. But you don't win any points just for being clear. You win points for having a few ideas. You know, knocking something down all the time is fine, but surely you have to have something to build from time to time. Uh, we do, and but yes, I mean, as I said, we have uh, a long-standing commitment to reform of the European Union. But I think what people are more interested than that is what we've got to say on other issues like uh, funding of schools, recruiting more police officers, uh, making sure that our teachers have the, the resources that they need to ensure that all of our schools perform uh, at an appropriate level. That I would say is mu of much greater interest to people uh, than uh, uh, you know measures to reform certain aspects of the European Union. What about Guy Verhofstadt? Were you in the room for his uh, barnstorming speech? I found it rather bizarre, I have to say. No, I, I loved his barnstorming speech. What, what was wrong with it? Well, he was going on about empires, and I would say that if uh, anybody had got up on stage yesterday at the Lib Dem conference and talked about the British Empire and how great it was and how wonderful uh, we should really try and reenact it, uh, because the only way forward is to be part of an empire, uh, I would imagine that somebody would start throwing bottles at them, wouldn't they? Because we hate the British Empire, but you want to be part of a European empire. Well, the, the British Empire is something that uh, is well behind us. And I think the point that Guy was making, which I think is a, a valid point, is that some of the people on the Brexit side of the argument have perhaps forgotten uh, that we don't actually have an empire anymore. And that uh, countries... Well, why do you want to have a new one? Well, the, the European Union isn't an empire. Well, he European says it Union... is. No, I don't think he, he said used it was an the empire word, He used speech. the word empire about 20 times. Yes, in relation to a British empire. What no, the European he didn't. Union you know, he was is, talking about you have to be part of an empire because the world is made up of empires. He said that India was an empire, that China was an empire, that America was an empire, and that we should be part of the European empire. I think what the point he was making is that we should be part of a, a block that in the present sort of uh, world, uh, world scenario is that we have some very, very large influential countries China, India, the US, Russia, and that, and, and Russia, and that uh, smaller countries are going to struggle if they are not part of a block that is of a comparable size, and that is the only point he's making. He well, isn't Britain suggesting is, that Britain, if, that Britain, the European well, Union, the is fifth, an empire well, the with a large, common government, but, for instance. But Britain is the fifth largest economy in the world. Tom, well, it's not uh, going to become the, the. It's going to become the fiftieth, is it? Just because it leaves the European Union. Yes, but the, the US economy and the Chinese economy are, are the two largest and we're going to then be seeking to, to negotiate with them over things like trade deals. Uh -huh. I'm afraid they're going to come off better and that's why if we are part of a European Union bloc and we have that negotiation with the US, uh, in, if we are in the European Union, that's not what the, the, US US, says, of course. the US is not going to be able to impose its animal welfare standards on us. If we are alone in those negotiations with the US and we are desperate for a deal, I think we're going to find it very hard to resist uh, the much lower animal welfare standards that the US wants to impose on us. OK. Would you join an EU defence force? Uh, there's no such thing as an EU defence force. What there is, uh, rightly... There isn't is, now, but there is, is going to be. No, there's not going to be a European army. What there is, sensibly, are attempts to make sure that equipment uh, is compatible 
that is sensible. Uh, there is not a proposal to have a European army, and certainly that's not something that I would, uh, I would support. Would you support joining the Euro? I wouldn't support joining the Euro. OK. Tom, thank you very much indeed. Tom Brake there, uh, Lib Dem's Brexit spokesman, says uh, there's no such thing as a European army, wouldn't join the Euro, and would make reforms to uh, the European Union, but also would block Brexit if they were elected to be the next government of this country. What do you make of that? Alan is in Hackney, wants to talk about trolling. Hello, Alan. Hello, mate. How are you I'm, doing? I'm fine. Uh, I take my dignity in my hands ringing you up about this subject because I, right. I could easily make myself look like a fool. But these hate speech laws, I think there's a double-edged sword. I try to Google the who, who funds this uh, hate speech, whatever it is, thing, this, this Amir chat that you were talking yeah. to on the uh, telephone. I couldn't get to the bottom of it because these... Uh, these, these uh, well, it's kind of like a conspiracy theory thing. Like, say, for example, uh, if you, if you, if, if we know things now through Twitter that we wouldn't know. Uh, now, if you bring in hate speech laws and start calling these things hate, yeah. then it's a way of controlling the data. It's a way of controlling things that people know. Now, we know a lot of things that the politicians rather we didn't know. Right. How much the, the, the pensions are, uh, we know. I mean, it's very controversial, Mike. You might have to hang up the phone on me. You know, we know about the sort of things with the rape squads, the rape things up in uh, Rotherham or Rochdale or wherever it is. We know well, about we do, yeah, we, we do know about them because there are court cases that are, that, are, that, well, that, that, well, that take place. People knew about them a long time before they went to court. So this is what I'm saying. Is the kind of it's, I don't know. Listen, I'm not. I'm not going to go onto a side of politics here or there. But I can't help but feel these things are a double-edged sword, and they're going to be used so, yeah. to silence people. Well, like, I mean, I, I was quite. Issues. I mean, I was. I was quite surprised that Imran Ahmed didn't uh, recognise the, the suggestion that I gave him that people are getting arrested for saying things on Twitter which would not normally be considered to be a crime, like the two examples I gave afterwards. You know, of the two people who were arrested uh, for having uh, made transphobic comments on Twitter. You know, that's not what the police are for. Well, listen, uh, 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 there was that famous swimmer, a uh, uh, powerful swimmer. Sharon Davis. Swim. No, was it Sharon Davis? She got involved in an internet she did. Uh, sort of like uh, 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 an argument with a, with a transgender. Yeah. Uh, right, chap, this person. And... Uh, and it's about sports. So you've got transgender people taking part yes. in female sports now. Which, and of course, the which females is a perfect, can't win. But it's a perfectly good debate to be had. What I'm saying is, is that should not be shut down just because some people think well, that they don't agree with what's being said. And there you see the other side of the sword, Michael. This is the whole point. And I see both yeah, sides of every say, sword. I did say I did say I took my dignity in my hands when I made this call because it's, you could either laugh at me or go, yeah, the guy's got a point. No, but well, I mean, listen, I, I would not laugh at you, uh, Alan, but no, the no, point no. is I, I, I don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying. My point is, is exactly that, that you don't put... You know, kind of, but but to be fair to Imran Ahmed, they're not asking for rules to be put in. They're just starting a campaign in which they are asking people to block people and mute them. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with that per se, uh, as long as they're not going to try and make laws that we don't all agree with. Okay, well, I do. I, I mute and block people as well. I just, right. I just, it's, and there's it's, nothing it's, wrong. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. And there's nothing. And it's perfectly normal for people to be asking to do that. I just think that Twitter specifically should be better at policing their own social media platform. But Alan, I hope you think your dignity is still intact. Let's talk to John in Dover. Hello, John. Hi. How are you? Very well. What would you like to say? Um, what frustrates me about 
climate change is how polarized the debate has become. Yeah. Um, take diet, for example. You have some people saying we need to all go vegan to reduce climate change. Yeah. It's not realistic. And others saying we don't need to bother changing our diet at all when really growing crops to feed indoor battery animals every day is an inefficient use of carbon-intensive resources. Well, we also get universities. I think Cambridge was the last one over mm. the weekend to say that they were not going to serve uh, any kind of meat in uh, mm. the Cambridge halls of residence where the students live. Mm. You know, they're perfectly entitled to do that if they want, but it seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't see why you couldn't serve, like, free-range animals as they yeah. eat mainly grass. So, you know, eating them would still roughly half your carbon footprint compared to eating battery meat. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, everything is very polarised, but I think more than more than that, we're talking about now children being frightened, and I don't think anybody wants to frighten children. But mm. parents are frightening their own children. I mean, you will have seen, John, as I have, mm. some of these marches where you've got the women with their daughters and their daughters are in tears saying, you mm. know, the world's going to end. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I completely understand and agree with that. I, I think it's ridiculous saying the world's going to end. Mm. Uh, but, but there's a lot of people saying it and a lot of people calling it an emergency and a lot of people saying that if we don't change the way that we behave mm. now, the world will end. I think what people don't realise is you can, you know, we can carry on polluting, you know, for the next 20, 30 years. And if we, you know, still after that decide to take, you know, significant action, it, it, it's not like you get to a point and then suddenly it becomes irreversible. There's, it's always reversible to an extent. And there's a lot that people are doing, um, some of which is going to make a change and some of which will make absolutely no difference at all. Yeah, and I, I definitely think it's about working together rather than, you know, standing on a pedestal saying, I'm doing this and everyone... Yeah, my concern as well, John, is that people st make statements of fact which are not, in fact, statements of fact. I'd like to see that ending. I don't want to see somebody's opinion, somebody's prediction being peddled as some kind of absolute fact, which is what the problem is with climate change. Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, a prediction is a prediction, it's not a fact. Exactly. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with not wanting to pollute the, the, the world's uh, oceans with plastic. There's nothing wrong with trying to cut down on single-use plastics. That's all great. But it's not going to change the, 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 the temperature of the Earth. Yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously reducing the amount we emit is good. Um, I think there are certain things like, you know, prawns, which are... Prawns? Yeah, they're roughly five times more intensive, um, carbon intensive than average sea fish. Although, what you do know, you mean? So, when prawns, um, when you farm them, you have to keep the, you use a lot of power on the boat to keep it stable in the same place. Um, so, what that boat? Uses up, so you have to be in a stationary boat to when you farm prawns. When you fish for them, you mean? Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, it's a fishing uh, boat. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's wrong with being stationary in a fishing boat? Um, because obviously the sea's moving, so it takes quite a lot of fuel to right. stay stationary. Okay, but I mean, if you're moving, you're using the same amount of fuel, aren't you? Um, so I, I have to say I can I don't complete because obviously when you're moving to get fish, that will use up a certain amount of energy. We'll move I the same amount. So if you can either move or sit still, as long as you've got the engine on, it's the same, isn't it? Um, I don't completely know. I, I can only say what I've read. I'm not going okay. to be an expert in this. All right. Field. Well, listen, John, I appreciate your call. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's good to end on a note of uh, what can only be described as uh, unsureness. Uh, nobody's really sure whether it's safe or good 
to farm prawns or not. <laughs> well, we'll bring you more updates on that coming up in the course of the week. Uh, we'll do a bit of a prawn special, shall we? Uh, how about a prawn biryani? Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.